This past month, I sat down with a man who shared how he came to listen to Back to the Bible Canada. It seems he and his wife listened to Laugh Again every day and not to miss a program would set a reminder for five minutes prior to its start. Well, that five minutes allowed them to hear Dr. Neufeld for the first time. And five became ten and ten, well, eventually they were listening to both programs from start to finish. Stories like these fill our hearts. God is using these ministries to encourage, to draw people to himself and into his word. This month, would you help us sustain and grow the impact of these ministry programs across Canada? What Back to the Bible Canada is about is really quite simple. We teach the Bible, and your support allows that to continue. Send a gift today toward our fiscal year-end campaign. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series in the book of Revelation called The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 2. And we're going to turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 to 8, for a message entitled The Two Witnesses. Let's join him now. Some time ago, I saw a list of seven reasons for involvement in evangelism. Let me read the list. One, because it's the command of Christ. Two, because of the lost condition of all people. Three, because of promises of the gospel for eternal life. Four, because Christ is coming soon. Five, because love for others compels us on. Six, because it's the character of the gospel to reach out. And seven, because the transformation we have received compels us. That's really a beautiful list. For 2,000 years now, the Church of Jesus Christ has been sharing the glad news of Jesus with a world that desperately needs to hear. You know, there have been times because of corruption and the love of earthly power that the gospel has almost been eclipsed. But in spite of human sin, this glorious gospel has been reaching men and women throughout the world. And in our finest hours, men and women of Jesus have not loved their own lives, but gave them up freely so that the world might believe. In a sense, Revelation 11 is the end of the story of the Great Commission. From the time of Jesus up to the present, the gospel continues to progress and move forward. But at some time, the last convert will be called home and the door to the kingdom is going to be closed. Revelation 11 ought to be so much more than trying to understand a difficult passage. The courage of the two witnesses and the grace of God that attends their lives ought to help us remember the faithful witness of countless believers who, out of love, sought to bring the gospel to the world. And it also reminds us that the time to respond is short. So with that in mind, I'm reading Revelation 11, 1 to 8. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it has been given to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. 
And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Now, I've read the first half of this passage. I leave the second half until tomorrow, but I want at the outset to notice verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. If one goes forward in Revelation to chapter 13 and verse 1, we read, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, and then, forward to 13 verse 5, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Then ahead to verse 7, Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. So let's be clear about what we're reading in Revelation 11. The two witnesses are given authority to carry on their ministry for three and a half years, and then, after they are killed, the beast or the Antichrist will decimate the church for the last three and a half years. That's a fulfillment of the last seven years of human history that was predicted by the prophet Daniel. Also, to be clear, I'm not interested in whether the seven years are in some way symbolic or an actual seven years. Now, that argument is, for me, a very small part of that passage. Now, for my study of the book of Daniel, I think of that to be a real seven years, but the real drama surrounds the first three and a half years of tribulation, followed by the last three and a half years. Now, we notice then that for the first half of the tribulation, these witnesses, and thus also the whole church, is protected, and then in the last half, the church is severely persecuted. Now, that fits well with Jesus' words that if those days had not been shortened, no one would survive. Now, before we deal with who these two witnesses are, whether they're actual persons or represent the church as a whole, let's have a look at who they are. From the passage we have read, there are four images or four representations of them that that catch our eye. First, we find out that according to verse 4, that these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, that's an image that's borrowed from the book of Zechariah. The Old Testament book of Zechariah was written after the exiles from the Babylonian captivity had returned to their home. Zechariah encourages them to rebuild the temple and not to become discouraged because of the great challenges that lie before the Jewish people. So I'm reading Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it, seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. Now, as one continues to read Zechariah, the olive trees are identified as two men, one named Zerubbabel and the other named Joshua. You know, in those days, those two men built the temple of God, Zerubbabel being the builder and Joshua being the high priest who inspired God's people. Furthermore, it was made very clear in Zechariah that their ministry is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Indeed, empowered by God's spirit, mountains become plains, says Zechariah. All all obstacles are removed. The lampstands in the visions were the symbol of God's very presence. So the two witnesses in Revelation 11 are just like that. At some time in the future, when when God's people are so dispirited that that they can't go on, 
These two witnesses inspire them, and they do so by the power of the Holy Spirit to build the temple of God. I hear Paul's words that we, the people of God, are being built into a holy temple. Okay, let's go now to the second symbol. It's verse 5, and it says, If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Now, clearly, this image refers back to the Old Testament prophet Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah has prophesied against the sinful king Ahaziah, the king of Israel. Ahaziah has just fallen from the lattice in his upper chamber of his palace, and he had severely injured himself, and Elijah had prophesied that King Ahaziah would not recover from his injuries, that he would die. In response, Ahaziah, from his bed, sends 50 men to go and get Elijah and bring him back to the capital in Samaria. Of course, what Ahaziah has in mind is simple. Unless Elijah performs a miracle and heals him, he has instructed his men to kill Elijah on the spot. And so when the captain and his 50 demand that Elijah come with them to Samaria, Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you. And that's exactly what happens. Fire comes from heaven and burns the 50 men alive. And the word of this horror comes all the way back to Samaria. And so King Ahaziah sends another 50, and the same scenario actually repeats itself. At Elijah's word, fire comes down from heaven and consumes them, just like the first 50. And then a third team of 50 is sent, and when the third commander approaches Elijah, he treats the situation differently than the others. Instead of commanding Elijah to follow him, this commander falls onto his knees and begs the man of God to have mercy for his life and the life of the 50 who are with him. And with that, God tells Elijah, don't fear this man. You can follow him to Samaria, and he's going to protect you there. He will make sure that King Ahaziah will not harm you. And of course, Elijah goes to Samaria, and he visits King Ahaziah, and he tells the king that the king will surely die. And with that, he leaves the city under the protection of the commander of the 50 men. Now, that's the Old Testament background to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 5. And says Revelation 11, that's what it will be like with these two witnesses. If anyone seeks to harm these two witnesses for three and a half years, fire pours from their mouths and consumes anyone sent from the Antichrist who wants to harm them. Now, does that mean that literally fire comes from their mouth? Well, I suspect not, but it does seem that just like in the time of Elijah, God sends a literal fire to destroy anyone who would harm these two witnesses. God is determined to supernaturally intervene so that these witnesses would not be harmed for the full time that God has determined that they would carry on their ministry. Now, let's remember what we've learned. When God sends his witnesses in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, these men inspire the church to rely on the Holy Spirit not to be discouraged, but to be greatly encouraged. Furthermore, God kills anyone who tries to harm these two. Again, we're forced to ask, what's all this about? So please stay with me through this passage. I'm going to explain just that. This month, we're excited to begin airing Volume 2 of Dr. Neufeld's new release series on the Revelation entitled, The Triumph of the Lamb. 
Volume 2 includes the study of chapters 6 to 11 and includes topics such as the opening of the seals, the 144,000, the great multitude, the significance of the trumpets, and so much more. For most of us, when we hear this series, we'll gain wonderful new insights and a new depth of understanding as Dr. Neufeld helps us to allow the scriptures to speak for themselves in this often reluctantly studied book. Now for this month only, as we did with Volume 1, we want to make the Triumph of the Lamb CD series available for only $10 plus shipping and handling. This is a series you'll want to make a point of hearing. So call us today for this special price at 1-800-663-2425 or you can order online at backtothebible.ca. The third image of the two witnesses comes from verse 6. They have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Now again, this image comes from the prophet Elijah. In 1 Kings 17 verse 1 we read, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Those of you who know that account know that this event happened at the beginning of the prophet's ministry. It really established his ministry as well as the defeat of the prophets of Baal, along with getting the attention of everyone in Israel, along with the king and queen. In essence, the ability to command a drought and then to command rain made it abundantly clear that this was a prophet of God and that his God was the only genuine God. Now, to the final image in Revelation 11. The latter half of verse 6 reads, They have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So clearly this is a reference to the ministry of Moses in which he brought plagues on Egypt and in so doing brought Egypt to its knees and forced the most powerful nation on earth to let God's people go. So let's see if we can put these four images together to get a sense of the ministry of these two witnesses. First, we saw that their ministry would greatly encourage the church and would be conducted in the power of the Holy Spirit. Second, we saw that their ministry would operate under divine protection so that anyone who tried to harm them would be killed. Third, we saw that their ministry would be so powerful that it would get the attention of the most powerful leaders in the world in their time. That's clearly a reference to the Antichrist. And fourth, we saw that their ministry would force the powerful of the earth onto their knees so that they would have no choice but to do what these witnesses demand. And that leads us to a question that I think we can no longer ignore. Who are these two witnesses? There are all manner of Bible teachers who argue that these two are merely symbolic references to the church as a whole. So they argue that the promise is given that the church is going to be so empowered by the Spirit and so protected by the plan of God that the church will cause even the great and powerful to confess that their God is real. For instance, the church in Thyatira was promised that God would throw false believers onto a sickbed and strike their followers dead and furthermore, that the one who conquers will be given authority over the nations. Now, I'm actually not convinced of that perspective. First, the church will not be given that power until the millennium. And second, the description of the two witnesses is given in such vivid detail that it seems unlikely that they're anything other than two real people. 
It should not strike us as surprising that God uses real leaders to inspire God's people as a whole. But the third reason I think that they're real people really does introduce us to a very interesting feature in this text. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, we read, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Now, that's clearly a reference to Jerusalem. So we have two men who carry out their ministry in Jerusalem. So what do we make of that? Well, for one, at the time of the writing of Revelation, there was not much left of Jerusalem. Remember, John writes Revelation about 25 years after the city was destroyed, and the city would not be rebuilt for another 45 years after the letter was written. So when John wrote, to all intents and purposes, that city didn't exist, it was destroyed. And yet, John is explicit. The two witnesses prophesy in Jerusalem. You know, if this passage were merely symbolic, we would expect they witness in Rome or in Babylon or somewhere that signifies that they witness in the world. Instead, John explicitly mentions the city of Jerusalem. And there's another item here. According to Revelation 13, the beast or the Antichrist rules from Rome, and it's from there that he makes war on the saints and conquers them. And so at least from Revelation 13, two chapters later, it seems like all the action happens in Rome. Jerusalem hardly gets mentioned in Revelation until the end, where there's a new Jerusalem, the eternal home of the saints. But that takes us back to Revelation 11. The reference to Jerusalem is so clear and so unmistakable that there can be no doubt that John is referring to the actual historical city. You know, the great Bible teacher George Eldon Ladd approvingly quotes Hans Lilge, who says, Thus here Jerusalem is not merely mentioned as an empty theoretical metaphor. In some way or another, the earthly, geo-historical Jerusalem will have its place in the history of the last days. I think he's right. Jerusalem is the center of the earth. The place is real. It's the place where Christ will rule and reign at the end of the age. And so it seems that Antichrist has established his capital city, but that his authority extends to Jerusalem. And these two witnesses are in Jerusalem. Ladd goes on to say that he sees the city as described in Revelation as inhabited by Jews. I mean, perhaps he's right. See, it might be that what John pictured here is the fulfillment of the words that were spoken by Jesus. So I'm reading Luke 13, 34 to 35, which describes Jesus' lament over the city of Jerusalem. Remember them? He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So please notice that in Jesus' words, we have a very clear statement that Jerusalem will see him again in the day when they bless him in the name of the Lord. In other words, even though the situation in Jerusalem among the Jewish people was filled with unbelief, that their city is laid desolate, and yet the day will come, Jesus predicts, when they will bless Jesus, and then they will see him as their Messiah. Now, Paul repeats words very similar to this in Romans 11. He's speaking about Israel, and he says, like branches are broken off from the vine because of their unbelief. And then in verse 24, he adds, 
For if you, that is you Gentiles, were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? And then a few verses later, in verse 26, Paul promises that when this grafting in happens, then all Israel will be saved. So you see, it's passages like this that lead me to believe that the drama being expressed in Revelation 11 really does deal with what Paul so longed for in Romans 11, 13, and 14. I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So if I've understood Revelation 11 rightly, it seems to me that the passage begins with John measuring the temple. I've thought that John is speaking of God's commitment to preserve his church in spite of the hardship she's facing. Indeed, earlier, John has told us that God would put a seal on the forehead of his servants so that when the trumpets sound, God's elect are going to be protected. And then in Revelation 11, we see two witnesses, which I assume must arise out of the church, whose work is being also carried out in Jerusalem. And we don't know why. You know, back in verse 2, we learned that Jerusalem would be trampled for 42 months, which is three and a half years. While God is protecting his people, unbelieving Israel is being trampled on. And yet during those horrific days, God appoints two witnesses who seem to have a ministry, my view, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, as Jesus called them. Notice verse 8 again. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Jerusalem, says John, can be called Sodom and Egypt, names that speak of rebellion against God's purposes. And yet, God is not finished with the Jewish people. As the church of Jesus Christ, the faithful witnessing church, remembers that she has an eternal debt to the people of Israel, it would seem that in the last days, God raises up his witnesses to so minister to the Jewish people with such power and under such divine protection that Israel begins to listen. So, from my perspective, this chapter may account for the turning and the welcoming of Jesus by the Jewish people when he returns in glory. And so, John presents us with a scene in which the triumphant church of Jesus Christ not only fulfills Christ's words that the gospel is going to be preached to all nations and then the end will come, but also that the faithful church will reach back to the Jewish people and their witness will cause a national turning to God from the people of Israel. Does that make you want to be faithful in witnessing to Christ? I hope it does, for God has said that his work will in the end succeed. John, I think you did an incredible job of explaining this passage. I want to ask you a question, though. Regardless of the interpretation of the details, of which there might be some disagreement on from some people, there seems to be underlying truths that won't change. Yeah, I think, Ben, the underlying truth is that the Church of Jesus Christ is victorious. We will fulfill the mandate that Christ has given us. We will bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And in the process, I think I'm hearing this, 
that we will also, in the end, God will raise up his people who will succeed in also reaching back to his chosen people. I, I love that, and it gives me great hope. Thanks so much, John, and join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible.